Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I'm welcoming Philippe Cibot onto the show. Philippe is a trustee and writer for the Gaia Foundation, an international London-based NGO which has been working for 35 years with indigenous people to uphold earth-centered perspectives. He co-runs Omanthu Microfinance, an NGO that he set up in 2010 to provide small-scale loans to disadvantaged women in Malawi. He currently has a thousand clients. He holds an MA in Myth, Cosmology, and Sacred with distinction from Canterbury Christ Church University and has been a dedicated student of astrology for many a solar return. He was born at night under a crisp February full moon. And in his new book, Scavengers of Beauty, he explores the symbolism behind the 1969 moon landing. Welcome, Philippe. I wanted to just take a minute to tell you all about the upcoming course that I'm offering, which I'm really excited about, course or guide. I, I like the idea of guide better than course, but course is what you all identify with. So we'll call it that for now. Anyway, the course is going to be integrating a lot of what we talk about on the show, the notion of soul contracts, how to face your fears around death, how to embrace death, how to think about some of the lessons, or as I recently heard, sort of the curriculum of your life, and really use that to what I'm calling live your life backwards, and really map out an understanding of where you're going and, and really take tap into the essence of who you are. So if you are interested in this, I do have a wait list that is getting started right now, and you can find that in my show notes. Also, something else I'm going to be trying out in next season is showcasing some small product-based businesses, particularly women-run, but I'm open to kind of anything. And if you have a product-based business that is in the genre of some of what we've talked about on the show along the lines of like spirituality, maybe some wellness stuff, please reach out to me. I would love to use this platform to help support small businesses, especially now as people are really struggling for those businesses to stay afloat. So you can sign up in my show notes and if you're interested in more information about the course, also you can please sign up for my newsletter at dramyrobbins.com and you can email me or DM me on Instagram at dramyrobbins if you have a small business, a product-based business that you are looking to get some help promoting. And here's today's show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the on the on the show. And thanks thanks for your help with the pronunciation there. I get a little tongue-tied sometimes. You're welcome. It's not easy. So I'm excited to have you on today. We spoke a little bit before we started, but for me and and maybe for my listeners, they might be more informed than I am on this. But I'm really curious about some of the basics of sort of what is cosmology. Well, I, supp I suppose, strictly speaking, cosmology is the science of the cosmos and, and how, how we uh, apprehend the cosmos. Um, cosmos itself is an interesting word. Um, the Greeks used that word. And cosmos, for the Greeks, had a sense of 
carried a sense of aesthetics, of beauty. And we find that in our current um, cosmetics, for instance. Um, with the Romans, the cosmos be became the universe. And by becoming the universe, it, it was stripped of this aesthetic um, uh, charge, if you want. So I personally quite like this word cosmology because it does carry this notion of, uh, of this Greek notion of, uh, of aesthetics. So there is indeed, uh, there is such beauty in the cosmos itself. And whether you look at it from a purely rational scientific angle or a more symbolic stroke astrological angle, um, everywhere you look is, uh, you find beauty. What is considered the cosmos? Is it the stars, the moon, the sun, the planets? Is it the universe? Like what, what falls in that? Yeah, it's, 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 it's the whole, um, whatever was born 13 and a half or so billion years ago with the Big Bang, all these arrangements of, you know, atoms and molecules and forming planets and, and stars, um, that's the cosmos. And of course, the Earth is is part of it, in a in in a, in a corner of the Milky Way, but the sheer size of the cosmos is just, just mind blowing, um, and and we are I think way too limited in our understanding to actually grasp it. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about it, I just think, holy, how do you even study that? Like it seems so vast that there is no end to it. So where do you even begin to start? Well, I think a good place to start is um, is with the moon because it's our closest neighbor. Of course, the, uh, when we, we are earthlings, we are living on earth. So this is our platform. This is our observation point. And of course, the ancients, and when I say the ancients, I mean people way back thousands of years ago couldn't but not be awed by, by, the, by the sky at night. And, uh, and, and of course, it was very tempting and probably inevitable to, to look at the sky and look at patterns and, and therefore the constellations were born, the specific arrangements of stars um, that were assigned uh, a, a, a symbolic uh, uh, meaning. Uh, but also what the ancients noticed is that while most stars are fixed in relation to each other, meaning they move at night in the same pattern, a few stars were wanderers and were not fixed. And these stars are, of course, the planets. And the, the planets change position in, in, in relation to the fixed stars of the sky. And these moving stars, so to speak, were especially interesting for the ancients because they, they wondered what, uh, what it was all about. Why were these little shiny points moving in relation to the fixed stars while all the other stars were fixed? And, uh, and therefore it, uh, it became, uh, it became a very, um, interesting, um, it, it developed into a kind of science of the heavens to try to understand why these these little planets and there are not so many of them. If you uh, you know naked planets, uh, planets that you can see with the naked eye, is basically moon. If you consider the moon a planet, well, of course it's strictly speaking a satellite, but say the moon, and then Mercury, Venus, Mars, 
Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, and at, during the day, the Sun. So these are the seven traditional planets in astrological terms. But basically, these are the, the, the seven points that were moving in the, in the sky in relation to, to the rest of the background, uh, star, starry background, if you want, which was fixed. So they, these became very quickly, very interesting for the ancients, and they tried to understand uh, why it was so. Now, I'm not, I'm not bringing in uh, the precession of the equinox and other you know, phenomenon that indeed change a little bit the position of the, of the, of, of, of the fixed stars as well. But I, I, I think I want to emphasize how uh, those seven planets became very quickly particular points of interest for, for, for the ancient astronomers, if you want. And then maybe uh, we can also highlight, because they are so much bigger, the role of the moon and of the sun, um, which were even more uh, intriguing, I think, for, for the ancients, because obviously the sun was assigned to the day, the moon to the night, the fact that they are both of the same size is, is really fascinating. So there is this very interesting polarity that developed. And uh, that's what I'm looking at in the, in the book as well. So really, it's about looking at the cosmos in that sense, the near cosmos, of course. We are talking about the nearest you know, uh, celestial objects to, to Earth. And to try to understand the uh, evolution of consciousness seen through the angle of moon and sun yeah so can you that's that's sort of the juice that i want to get to here can you talk a little bit about that polarity and about lunar consciousness versus solar consciousness and what that looks like and how we can be paying attention to that in our in our lives yeah um, um what i've done is really uh, paint a very broad picture and I, want, I just want to, to be quite clear on that. I'm not pretending to come up with absolute truth. You know, it's a symbolic take, and it's almost also a, a poetic take. But basically, what I'm looking at is way back, say, in Paleolithic times, 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, um, when we look at the works of art of that period, what we find mainly are small statues of mother uh, figures or goddesses. And very often those, those figures have lunar symbolism as well. So my take, which is not my personal take, obviously other, uh, of the other people have talked about that as well. What I'm looking at is, is that it looks like humanity was born with a, a very acute consciousness of the moon, more than the sun. And that at the time, the moon was the main object in the sky because obviously this was a very fascinating object, you know, changing shape and having this kind of circular rhythm within an endless cycle. So the, the new moon, dark, waxing, reaching the fullness of the, of the full moon and then waning back to the, to the dark moon in an endless cycle. That must have been absolutely fascinating. And... And there was definitely a very strong association, especially later on during Neolithic times, between the moon and the and the earth as well. So what I'm so the fact that the moon changed 
was what was so fascinating to people. The sun came out every day and looked basically the same, right? But the moon didn't. Yes, that? That, that's that's my that's how I look at things. And again, you know, who knows? It's it's you know, it's it's a symbolic poetic take. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm if you want, I'm weaving this this thread in order to arrive at the moon landing in 1969. So basically, um, my premise is that way back, the moon reigned supreme in the sky. And that lasted for thousands of years until, say, four to 5,000 years ago, when gradually the moon was superseded by the sun. And with the moon, I associate the feminine, and a lunar, what I call a lunar consciousness, which is, which carries more feminine values. And when the moon eventually becomes superseded by the sun, the sun in this polarity that we see in the sky, the sun carries the opposite values, which are more masculine and, and, and what I call a solar consciousness. Now, I want to emphasize quite clearly that when I'm talking about feminine and masculine here, I'm talking about an archetypal quality. I'm not talking about gender. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think it's quite important to uh, to highlight that. Uh, archetypally, I see the moon as as feminine because the moon uh, is is aligned to um, to the cycle of of of, a, of women, while the sun is is carrying uh, more uh, masculine values and. At the time of this transition, which lasted several thousand years as well, say between two to three thousand years, there was a shift also in, um, in how we approach uh, the divine. So while before mother goddesses, earth goddesses were revered and were the main goddesses, they were replaced by sky gods. So like mm. uh, in Greece, for instance, we had Zeus, uh, who was this the you know the the main god uh, on Olympus, um, and we have a very very many myths appearing at this time uh, of of the transition between uh, a lunar to a solar consciousness. Many myths appear appear that show a solar hero killing a, a dragon or a serpent. So in symbolic terms, this solar hero is, could be Apollo, for instance, or is Jason or Heracles. There are many, many myths where you see a solar hero, solar individual male hero killing a dragon or a serpent. And this animal, the dragon or the serpent, represents um, the powers of the earth, if you want. So the shift really was sort of away from the moon consciousness, the, f- the feminine consciousness, towards the sun consciousness, yeah. which was a more masculine consciousness as evidenced through mythology. Yes. And interestingly, then we go to the moon, right, which is a f- can seen as more perhaps feminine, on a spaceship that is named Apollo, yeah. which is the masculine. Yes, that, um, absolutely. That's the starting point of my book. I'm wondering why was the mission to the moon named after the god of the sun? 
why was it wasn't it named after mm. a moon goddess or even a moon god because you also have moon god you know mm-hmm. but why was it named after the god do, of the- do you want me to answer that question <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you want no um so that's the starting point of the book and therefore, um, that's why I'm, I'm weaving this thread and looking at the evolution of consciousness from a, a lunar moon consciousness to a solar and sun consciousness, because what I'm arguing is that we, are, for the last, say, 4,000 years, we, have, we are still in this solar consciousness. And therefore, uh, it makes sense when, we, when I looked at it, it made sense to actually name that mission to the moon after the god of the sun, because Apollo has come to represent uh, excellence, rationalism, professionalism, technology, uh, everything that is needed in order or was needed in order to have a scientific expedition to the moon. Therefore, it, it, it makes symbolically perfect sense because this is just a reflection of our own mindset, if you want, of our own consciousness. We, our world, and for, as I say, about 4,000 years, has been living under... Um, the spell of the sun. The sun has come to symbolize everything that is perfect, you know. When you look at, at religions, when you look like uh, Christianity, Christ was, was the sun of righteousness. Uh, but that's only one example of, among many. The sun has, has reigned supreme in our consciousness for the last 4,000 years or so. And therefore, it's in fact not surprising that this incredible achievement going to the moon should have been named after the god of the sun because the sun carries those perfect values if you want but but how do you think the shift away from sort of maybe the more and this might be my own bias here but the more feminine qualities since that time, or maybe even before, you know, for, if you want to look back, what did you say, 4,000 years? But I would also argue maybe, you know, when, when the moon landing was in 1969, I can't do math that quickly because I'm terrible at math. But um, what is that, 40, 50, 60 years? 50, 50, 50 years ago. Yeah. 50 years yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. The, do you think, like, a, as a society, we have shifted more towards the masculine, more away from the moon? And how would we shift back to a more balanced place of sort of masculinity, femininity, um, polar, uh, a lunar and solar consciousness? Yeah. Well, that's, that's uh, what I'm looking at really in the, in the book is there are, to me, there are two readings of, of the mission to the moon. 1969 mission to the moon. One is what I've just described, which is basically a triumph of science and excellence, a triumph of the sun, symbolized by Apollo, landing on the moon as a conqueror, you know, as as defeating the moon. So Mm. it it could be one way to look at it, uh, as the ultimate triumph of the sun over the moon, if you want. That's one Mm. way to look at it. Interesting. And I think that's, a way that leads us nowhere. It just leads us to more sun con- solar consciousness. And we can see all around us what this excess of solar consciousness, I'm not saying solar consciousness is is bad or should be avoided. No, no, I'm no, saying no. it's an right. excess of solar consciousness. And we see the result of that excess all around us on the, on the earth. 
So what I'm arguing is that if we stick to that reading of a triumph of the sun, we are in for big trouble. Now, another way to look at it is actually with Apollo, the sun landing on the moon, could this be actually the sacred marriage of sun and moon? So at that point, I'm looking more into alchemical symbolism because the alchemists were looking to realize this sacred marriage of, of the sun and the moon. So I'm saying, why don't we look at, at this Apollo mission as actually realizing the sacred marriage of sun and moon? And then what happens is when the sacred marriage takes place, the divine child is born from that union. And what I'm arguing is that the divine child is earth. So again, it's very symbolical. So I'm saying with Apollo landing on the moon, the sacred marriage takes place and what is born is a new consciousness of the divine child. And what I'm saying is when the astronauts went to the moon, they took that picture, they looked back at earth and took that very famous iconic picture of earth floating in space. And what I'm arguing is that if we look at the mission this way, what we realize is that the real uh, lesson, if you want, of the, of the mission is actually Earth. What we have found on the moon is Earth. That's what I'm arguing. And I'm mm. putting that in symbolic terms, alchemical terms of sun and moon, sacred union, giving birth to the, to the divine child. Because by getting out of Earth, by leaving Earth, we have turned our gaze back to Earth and seen, and seen the Earth in a totally different way. We have realized you know, the fragility of the earth and the beauty of it and, and the fact that uh, we are kind of uh, alone in the universe as far as we know and that we'd better take care of our cradle, if you want. Well, and I mean, just as you're talking, there's I'm hearing so much symbolism, like how we viewed, <clears throat> you know, conquering the moon and, and if we... If, if we have just one without the other, what that would mean for the earth, right? If we have just the sun, there's no earth. If we have just the moon, there's no earth. Yeah. They, have, they have to be working together in unison. And, and that the earth really serves as this beautiful place that we have to care for in the same way. And I think this is what you're saying, that you care that the, that the unity of two consciousnesses come together to care for whatever it is they bring into yeah. the world or the space. Is yeah. that Ab okay? Absolutely. And of course, this, um, as, as the um, esotericists say, as, as above, so below. So of course, this sacred marriage, this sacred union between masculine and feminine and between sun and moon that we could see symbolized by the Apollo mission, ideally is also and, and I think um, I want to argue that must also be reflected in, inside us as individuals. And I think that's the big work today is to try to rebalance masculine and feminine energies within us. And again, I'm talking about archetypal qualities here. I'm not, you know, because you could have a woman full of sun, full of masculine energy, and similarly a man full of lunar energy. So it's, it's about finding that balance between each individual. And then, of course, our relationship with Earth would be totally different. Mm, mm -hmm. 
And that's so. The can you? Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. And that's. Uh, no, I was just just concluding that that that's what really is required of us today is to engage with Earth in a different way, and I think that can only be done by a change of our own consciousness. Hmm. And I think to your point, integrating into each of us, both both the lunar and solar, the masculine and the feminine yeah. energies, that we aren't polarized in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. That that we are integrated. Yeah. What is the moon and the phases of the moon represented to people across time? Well, there was um there was definitely a sense that the dark of the moon, you know, the three days of, of the dark moon were dangerous times or were times when pestilence could happen or um they were, they were basically dangerous times. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, the full moon very often symbolized fertility. Uh, and often, actually, the, the, the cycles of, of the women in a, in a particular tribe, for instance, would, um, would, would work together, would uh, kind of uh, coincide and would follow uh, the cycles of the moon as well. So they... It, it's, I'm talking here quite a long time ago. Then, more recently, some astrologers like Dane Rudia, for instance, has, has written really beautiful pages about the, the different phases of the moon. And depending when you were born yourself as an individual, on the day you were born, and depend, depending on under which phase of the moon you were born, he would assign specific qualities to that. For instance, somebody born at the new moon would uh, carry new values. It's a new cycle. Mm. Therefore, would carry um, new values without necessarily being aware of them because it's the dark moon. So it's, it's, uh, it could be someone who really wants to birth something new but is not necessarily aware of what he or she wants to birth. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting take, uh, psychological take, if you want, on, uh, on the different phases of the moon. Uh, And what does it mean? I say this all the time. Oh, it must be a full moon. But I'm not even sure I know what that means. What does that what does that mean in terms of people's behavior or what's sort of the historic symbolism behind what, you know, there being a full moon means about I, I would understand, you know, a dark moon. Right. Because what you're saying is that's the time when. Yeah. Bad things happen. But I feel like the reverse, like people often say there's a full moon and that's why things are kind of going wonky. Well, the, the, the full moon is the, the highest, obviously the highest illumination of the moon by the sun. And it's when, uh, it's when the moon is at her most potent, if you want. So because the moon has such a physical effect on life on earth, we, we know the influence of the moon on, on tides, but the moon also has influence on us humans because we are made of water or 75% of water. So it is a well-known fact that in hospitals... Not that well-known. Maybe not. I don't know. Because I don't know. No, go ahead. (laughs) But I think if you talk to medics in hospitals, they would say that uh, there are more accidents during the full moon. And if you bleed at the the full moon, uh, you would bleed more because uh, all the the reasons of water are intensified, if you want. Um, so it, the full moon, because it's, it's the moon that are most potent, kind of quickens 
the biological rhythms of, I would not say all humans, but of many humans. And that's why many And so how do, yeah, so how does that cause us to act differently? Or does it for some, or well, is uh, that just a myth? No, I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's a myth. I think policemen and women would also say that they see more activity and uh, more activity on, uh, during the full moon. I'm not saying everybody is affected, or I think everybody is, but at diff- on, on different levels. But I think if um, I don't know, I suppose if you are a bit more sensitive, then uh, as I say, it quickens the blood almost. So you know, mm-hmm. everything becomes a bit more. Uh, highlighted, everything energized, more empathic, energized, absolutely. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. God, I'm learning so much. I feel like this is my own little course right now. <laughs> one, one last question. Yeah. Can you explain um, how the earth, moon, and sun are likened to the body, soul, and spirit? Yes. Well, that's really, I'm drawing on old philo- philosophical traditions here. I'm not coming up with that, but basically uh, it's the old idea that indeed the Earth, being this um, solid planet on which we live, is um, likened to the body. The sun, who has been carrying, um, the sun is, of, is often likened to spirit, indeed. Um, um, being the this shining, as I say, we have been living under the spell of the sun for for a long time, and we have also been living under the um, the spell of spirit. Of course, we are spiritual beings having uh, an earthly experience. So there is a kind of uh, natural association between sun and spirit that took place, and the moon is a go between between the earth and uh, and and spirit and the sun. And therefore, is likened to the individual to the individual soul, and very often the moon is the abode of the souls after death. For instance, in many traditions, uh, the soul leaves the earth and and goes to the moon. Depending on the quality of your life, either the your soul would stay on the moon or in between earth and moon, or would actually ascend higher, and and ideally reach reach the sun as 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 spirit. So. There is definitely mm-hmm. in a number of traditions, Neoplatonist and others, this uh, association between Earth, body, sun, spirit, and in between the moon as the soul, the individual soul. Uh, but again, it's it's pure symbolism, and uh, it's one way to look at things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Philippe, thank you so much for this super enlightening conversation. No pun intended there. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Can you let my listeners know where they can find you if they're interested in learning more about your work? Yeah, uh, I I can be reached by um, on a Gmail address, scavengersofbeauty at gmail.com. Just scavengersofbeauty in one word at gmail.com. I'm very happy to... uh, to engage and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, to engage with anybody who wants to. Very happy to receive any uh, comment, inquiry, question, um, you know, whatever. Great. And your, your new book, Scavengers of Beauty, is out yeah. now. Yeah. I don't even, it just, just came out. Yeah, it just came out. Uh, yeah. So it's available on all the usual platforms, online platforms and, and, book, and bookshops, e-books as well. Perfect. 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much again for your time today. Thank you very much uh, for, for inviting me. It was a pleasure, really. It was, it was great. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Bye-bye. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.